Once upon a time, there reigned a powerful, brave, and noble king. As a great warrior, he had freed the subjects of his realm from the tyrannical rule of an invading monarch. He not only secured peace for his subjects, he now ruled them with integrity and with compassion. With tireless self-sacrifice, he provided everything necessary for his subjects to prosper. And his domain flourished under his watch care. Needless to say, the subjects highly esteemed their great king. One day, several village children decided to journey to the king's palace and pay him a visit. They'd never been very far from home, but they thought this would be a very good idea. So with great excitement, they began to plan their journey. But when they began to discuss how they should present themselves to the king, they realized as they came to that grand palace, whatever it looked like, they knew nothing about such protocol. How do you approach a king at court? Well, everyone had a different idea and they began to fight and argue among themselves as to who was right and what was the best approach. An older boy happened upon the scene and scolded each child for claiming that his or her opinion was the right one. They needed to respect one another's viewpoint, he explained. You are all free to form your own opinions on how to approach the king but you cannot insist that everyone else submit to your approach as the only way. That's simply not fair. You must respect one another. So the children started off on their journey, quite content to hold their subjective opinions and pleased to extend to others the freedom to devise their own approach to the king. This was going to work out just great. Ironically, it did not seem to occur to any of them to investigate what the king himself thought. The prevailing religious philosophy of our day is reflected in the conclusion of this gaggle of village children. The prevailing voices tell us that we are all free to form our own opinions about how to approach God. And as long as we don't break the cardinal rule of telling someone else that they must follow our way, believe what we do, then everything is going to end just fine. Surely God will welcome us all if we just approach Him sincerely and on our own terms. It's just fine as long as we really mean it. Few seem to consider that one of the major themes of the Bible is that the King of Heaven has an opinion. If you are willing to get an honest read of the Bible from cover to cover, it will become quite clear that God insists on being approached on His terms, not on our terms. This crucial theme runs through the Scriptures and it's sounded in an early narrative that we find in Genesis chapter 4. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there to Genesis chapter 4. And if not, just to listen in or read the text with someone next to you. We will work our way through, phrase by phrase, through this chapter. As we do, we gain some of the context from Genesis 1 and 2 where God creates the universe. He is the Creator, the Sustainer, the Lord of heaven and earth. 
He has made us and designed us for His purpose. In Genesis chapter 3, however, Adam and Eve break God's law. They choose, rather than to listen to God and His counsel, that they will approach God on His terms. Not on His terms, but on their own terms. They're going to do things their own way. And the consequences were devastating. From that time forward, the world is plunged into moral ruin as they go their own direction and seek their own way. The evidences are with us today. And this is the Bible's interpretation of these evidences. We have war and disease and natural disaster and selfishness and death. And it is all a result of turning away from the life-giving Word of God. God speaks and the world comes into being. God speaks His counsel to His people and gives them life. But when we turn from the Word of God, we fall into sin and our world is crushed by it. Now this is very important as we move to Genesis 4 that we understand in chapter 3 and verse 15 there is a cryptic poetic statement of hope. God says even in the midst of disobedience and curse that there will come one who will set everything right. He will crush Satan's head. There will be in fact a a great fight. But this one will come, will be born, and will come to rescue and to save. There will be a conflict between two kinds of people. Those who follow God's delivering purposes and those who don't. All of that is in Genesis 3.15. And with that prospect ringing in our ears, we enter Genesis 4, which hinges on the story of a man who determines to approach God on his own terms. Clearly, at this point already in Genesis 3, God has laid out some terms of how to approach Him. There will be someone who comes, who delivers. The hope will be found in an individual. But as we come to Genesis 4, we find that Cain has his own ideas. And we find in this chapter three separate movements in the narrative. Each In each we see Cain's actions followed in a sense by God's response. So looking at this man Cain, and at God's response to his actions and his decisions, we gain a picture of God's saving purposes, maybe in a sense here in a negative example. But what we find first of all in Genesis 4 and verse 1 is Cain's worship. Genesis 4.1 reads, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. According to the Creator's design, Adam and Eve had sexual relations and Eve gives birth to sons. By describing their intercourse as knowing one another, we learn that God designed sex to express marital intimacy. Not to serve merely as an empty glandular release, but there's a purpose in it to procreate There is also a purpose in it to know one another. Now Eve suffers pain in childbirth as a result of the rebellion that we found in Genesis 3 and the curse that comes by her disobeying God's law. But she also here expresses faith, doesn't she? I have brought forth a man with the help of the Lord. She is giving thanks to God and we see a relationship continuing between her and the God who she has violated, whose word she has broken. She expresses her hope. 
in giving birth that somewhere in her progeny will come this One who will set everything right. Who will deal with sin and crush Satan's head. And so she expresses that hope. She bears Cain. She bears Abel. We read on that now Abel, as they have come to maturity, was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the first fruit of his flock and of their fat portions. So they're both bringing an offering to God. It indicates that God had instructed the first family in how to approach Him. You must come with sacrifice. So Cain, a farmer, brings produce, and Abel, a shepherd, brings a lamb. But we notice the problem here in verse 4 that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain, verse 5, and his offering, he had no regard. Now, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with grain sacrifices. As we go further into the Bible and God reveals His heart and continues to develop how people should approach Him, He's going to lay out legislation for the nation of Israel that He chooses in how to give grain offerings. They're to gather the first fruits of their harvest, those first cuttings, and to offer these grain offerings to God, along with lambs and these types of offerings. So there's nothing inherently wrong with offering produce. But the problem here is then not that God does not regard Cain's offering, period. But He does not accept His offering or Himself. That is, there's something wrong with Cain's offering, but there's something wrong with Cain's heart. His attitude is wrong. God has apparently again instructed the first family about the kinds of sacrifice that they should present to Him. Where we read of Abel's sacrifice, it's of the firstborn of the flock. And it includes fatty portions. For us in our setting, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to us. What is all that about? But for the first people reading this book, That makes perfect sense. They have been carefully instructed under the Mosaic Law how to offer sacrifices to God. And when they hear a lamb who is a firstborn, yes, that's the right kind of sacrifice. That is a sacrifice according to God's terms. When they hear the fatty portions, there was all kinds of instructions about how to deal with the entrails of the lamb, how to care for it and how to sacrifice it and to burn it before the Lord. So they understood all of this, and it would immediately say to them, Abel is following God's will. What do we read about Cain's sacrifice? Simply that he offered from the produce of the field. Nothing is said about it being the first fruits. Nothing is said about it being the choicest of the fruits or something along those lines. He just simply offers from the fruit of the ground. But again, as the text unfolds, it's not simply his offering. God doesn't instruct Cain and say, listen, you brought the wrong offering, go get the right one, and Cain dutifully runs and goes and gets the right offering. That's not what develops here. There's something wrong with Cain's attitude toward God in this worship, and that's why he brings the wrong offering. How does he respond to God's rebuke? Verse 5, Cain was very angry and his face fell. Whenever God looks with disfavor upon us, it is a gracious warning 
specifically designed to help us. But Cain did not lift up his face to receive the grace and the counsel of God. Rather, his face fell. He was rebuked. He was convicted. He was angered, in fact, by what God had done, not receiving His worship. He had come to be religious and to seek God. Who is God to think that He can correct him? He's angered by it. We read on in verse 6 that the Lord then says to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. That is, its desire is to have you. But you must rule over it. Why are you angry, Cain? That reflects the question of God in the garden when Adam and Eve fell. Where are you, Adam? It's not that God is asking these questions because He doesn't know the answer. This is like dealing with a distraught child and saying, why are you upset? And we already know why they're upset. We're welcoming them into a discussion. And that's what God is mercifully doing here with Cain. He is saying, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? Why are you jealous, discouraged, and hurt? Sin is crouching like a lion waiting to pounce upon you. You must act. You must change course, Cain. Or it will overcome you. You walk into sin, it will drag you down. Cain was in a sense on a water slide heading into destruction. He had to stop himself and get off the slide. Now it's not to say that Cain has the power in himself to do this. And to honor God's call and God's counsel. But God would be in this way drawing Cain to see that in God alone is His answer, His power, His repentance. But as God rebukes Cain and says, why are you discouraged? Why is your face fallen? Why are you angry with this rebuke? The text is eerily silent. Cain says nothing. Movement one. Cain's worship is found lacking. He is a religious man who is seeking to approach God, but he seeks to approach Him on his own terms. What is God's response? A rebuke. The King of Heaven does not say, come however you wish, approach Me however you would like. He is demanding a pure attitude and the right sacrifice. Now, as we hear this, you may actually sympathize with Cain and wonder why God seems to be so rough on him. He is worshiping after all. He is bringing an offering after all. Why, why not cut him some slack here? I think the reason that we identify with Cain on some level, maybe feel a little sorry for him or feel that God's a little rough, is that we don't grasp the reality that God has every right to demand that we approach Him on His terms. He is our Creator. He is the One who has designed us to thrive according to His will. And we struggle sometimes to give Him that right. He has every right to demand that we love Him with all of our heart, that we humble ourselves to obey His law because He loves us. And because He has designed His law and through obedience to it on our part to find our joy in His will. Again, so often here is where people miss it. 
so often right here where they say, I have my own religious beliefs. I have my own approach to God. I've put it together from the various places that I've developed religious ideas, and I think God is just fine with that. Is He? Is that what the Bible teaches? That God is just fine with us coming however we choose? But like the little children who are working their way to the great palace of the king, we need to stop and ask, does God have an opinion? And again, what we see over and over as the Word of God develops is that He has a decided opinion. And as the Creator, as our Sustainer, as our Savior, He has every right to insist that we approach Him on His terms. And His terms are fairly specific. As the Bible unfolds, we learn that God is holy and unpeachably just. He cannot tolerate sin. He must judge sinners or He would be untrue to Himself and to the purposes for which He's created the world. We see secondly, according to Romans 3.23, for instance, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are sinners. That's the fact of the matter, and that's how God sees us. He has said so in His Word very clearly in Romans 3, among many other places. Then thirdly, that the wages of sin is death. That we must die for our sin because God is just. But the good news in all of this is that God has made a way possible through substitutionary sacrifice for the sinner to be received by God. There's the sinner who says, I will do religion my way. I'll approach you the way that I choose. But then there's the sinner to whom God opens His arms and says, come and hear my plan. It is a plan indeed for sacrifice. And that sacrifice as the Scripture unfolds and unfolds out of this text, we'll look at that later, it points us to Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. A Lamb, as we sung earlier today, that would rescue the souls of those who trust in Christ. This is an exclusive approach to God. But again, this accords with what the Bible teaches. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 says, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. While we won't unpack that all here today, and not at this point, there is a reason why Jesus alone is the answer and the means to approach God. Because in the sacrifice of Christ, God can be just in punishing sin and the one who justifies the sinner who has not earned His forgiveness. Now the danger here is to reject God's plan of salvation by relying upon our own religious works. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to do good things. I'm going to be better than people around me. And in that way, I'm going to approach God. And I may speak to someone here. You're here for that reason. You may be here every week, week in and week out, and that's why you're really here. 
so that you would compare well with others, so that you would put together a sort of resume that you can present to God as being a religious person. The problem is that's not how the king is approached. And he has laid out the terms. Here is how a sinner can enter into the presence of a perfectly holy God. Through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, paying the penalty of our sin, rising from the dead to give life and victory over death. That's God's plan. There is salvation in no one else. No other way to the Father, says Christ, because of what He's done. There is a further danger when we begin to say, I am going to perform for God on my terms. I'm going to please Him on my terms. The further danger is that that thinking drags us downward on a spiral that takes us away from the truth. We might say that, well, at least the person is trying, and I'd really rather live next door to neighbors who are really trying. That they're trying to be good people. But the problem is that does not help us in our approach to God. In fact, it leads to a downward spiral of moral depravity. It may not look exactly like Cain, but we see the picture of it here. Cain is not a helpless victim of circumstances. He is not a pawn of God who should just learn to sit still on the operating table because there's nothing he can do anyway. Rather, God says to him, you must turn. Now again, I believe God is pointing him to God as the source of his power and his need to repent is in relationship with the Lord. But rejecting the grace of God's rebuke, refusing to repent of his sin, we see the spiral going downward as we enter now the second movement of this narrative at verse 8. We have looked at Cain's worship and God's rejection. Now we look at Cain's sin, his murder of his brother, beginning at verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. 1 John 3.12 reveals that Cain killed his brother because Abel's life pleased God. That was enough to kill him. He has turned away from the counsel of God. He sees Abel accepted and he doesn't like that. He's jealous. He's bitter. He's angry. And the best way to deal with it is just to get rid of Abel. problem is he can't get rid of God quite that easily. So rather than accepting God's decision, as one has said, he rejects the one that God has accepted. A shocking development of murder enters into this world. Cain stands then at the start of a long line of people who reject God's way and lash out at those who are faithful to the approach that God lays out on His terms. Abel stands at the start of a long line of people who die for honoring Christ, for honoring the way of salvation that God has laid out. In fact, those people, some of them are dying today as we speak, simply because they hold to the way that God has declared in His Word, the way to approach the Lord. So Abel is dead, but as I said, Cain has gotten nowhere because now he has to deal with God. Verse 9, Then God said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? Here's the questions again. It's again not because he doesn't know. But he's trying to draw Cain out. And Cain answers, verse 9, I do not know. Lie. 
Am I my brother's keeper? Bug off. Stay out of my life, God. Don't ask all these nosy questions. I don't know where he is, and I don't want you asking me such things. Just stay out of my life. Am I my brother's keeper? It's a bold challenge to God to mind his own business, and indeed, on some level, yes, Cain is his brother's keeper. He's not done a good job. But God loves Cain more than to honor his request to just bug off, to stay away. He loves him more. And so in verse 10, he continues to pursue the sinner. The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. He knows what he's done. But the blood crying from the ground was a common Hebrew idiom describing the groans of the innocent who suffer brutalization. God is a just God. He does not vindicate His people. He does not set everything straight as we think He should, when we think He should necessarily. But He is a just God. Now that just God speaks as a judge. Verse 11, And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Your curse from the ground does not mean he's going to levitate the rest of his life, but it means what uh, is stated there below, that it's not going to yield its produce for you. You're not going to succeed as a farmer any longer. Instead, you're going to become a fugitive with no place to call home, isolated, rootless, a despised outcast. Well, Cain has been very uncareful with his brother's life, but now he's going to be very careful with his own life. As he whines and begins to negotiate with God, fearful that he might die in these circumstances. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Stay out of my life when it comes to what's right and wrong, but I'd really appreciate your protection here. Provide for me. Take care of me. Just don't ask me any of these hard questions. Cain knows that the appropriate punishment for taking Abel's life was for someone to take his. So while he cares nothing about his broken relationship with God, does not repent of murdering his brother, he pleads that he not have to live as a hunted animal, that God would do something to protect him. And God responds with mercy. Verse 15, Then the Lord said to him, Not so. You're not going to die. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. It's a lawless environment at this point on some level. And there would have been, again, that deep sense that life has been taken, life must be taken in response. But God intervenes. We don't know what the mark is, but in some way He marks him off and says to those who are living on the earth at this time, undoubtedly in the developing of the generation, many individuals being born and they're not to touch Him. Yet Cain's alienation from God becomes permanent, doesn't it? Verse 16, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Nod meaning wandering. 
Cain has wandered away from the presence of the Lord and he takes up a state of spiritual alienation from God. There's no communication here. There's no relationship here. Why? Because Cain came with a sacrifice. He came to worship God. He came as a religious man. But when God rebuked his heart attitude, he said, I'll have nothing of this. And turning and spurning God in that first movement, he now has spurned him in the second. Now killing his brother, he's given in to lawless deeds. And this again is so applicable to our lives. The New Testament will bear this out. And I trust that our own experience will bear it out. Do you see yourself as one who breaks God's law? If you don't see yourself that way, you don't begin to see yourself the way that God sees you in the way of reality. Well, I've certainly never murdered anyone like Cain. Again, that just depends on how we compare ourselves. Among ourselves or with God? Who makes clear as His Word develops that when we have hateful attitudes toward people, we have the spirit of murder already resident within us. All we're lacking is the circumstances that would make us be able to get away with it. Have you ever wished somebody was just dead and out of the way? Well, it's just a wish because you can't act upon that and get away with it. But what if you could? What if you had the power to just remove somebody? Would you do it? That's the spirit of murder. The truth is we lie. The truth is we lust for what is not ours. The truth is we lose our temper and disobey our parents. And the truth is as the creatures of God, we do not love Him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. This is the reality of our situation. And our sin then alienates us from God and no amount of religious activity will atone for our wrongs. That's not how we approach God. Like Cain, we need to turn from our sin and invite the presence of God. Cain here has rejected his relationship with God again. He doesn't come to God and say, this is more than I can bear. I must have Your presence. I turn from my sin. I embrace You for who You are. I'll come to You on Your terms. Forgive me of harming my brother. No, he just says, take care of me and stay out of my life. Well, alienated from the presence of God, a fugitive from society, and certainly from that society that is seeking to honor God and His promise of a coming deliverer, Cain did not just sit around. We come to the third movement which deals with Cain's city. Cain is worshiper. Cain is murderer. Here, Cain is the father of a great city. Verse 17, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Now we're safe to assume that Cain's wife was one of his many sisters. A necessity at that point in history would not be a necessity. In fact, it's repulsive and it should be. God will legislate against it in time. But at this point in time, there are many children being born and this is a necessity as human history takes root. But what is key here is not that, but rather that a city is named after his son. Now that sounds like a noble thing to do, isn't it? Name a city after your son to honor your son. What we must understand though is that this is an act 
of extreme pride. In his alienation from God, in his isolation from others, Cain will create his own world. I'm not going to remain a fugitive. I'm going to build a city and I am going to settle down here. Cain is no wanderer in this place. This is his city, named after his son. You'll notice that he did not name the city Abel, but Enoch. Verse 18, to Enoch was born Arad, and Arad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. Cain's offspring through several generations is prosperous. Lamech, this individual is chosen for focus here, took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. He's an important figure, singled out as the father of this developing culture of Cain's city. And he takes two wives, breaking from the Creator's design of one man and one woman in a monogamous relationship for life. He's going to double the blessing, he thinks, which becomes a first mention of what turns out to be a very horrible relationship. A very horrible situation as it's practiced through Scripture against the Creator's design. But he goes his own way. He's going to do things his own way. Not listen to God. Ada, verse 20, bore Jubal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Here's the stockyards outside the city supplying food for the people in the city and making business for themselves in a living. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. People were dying. There had to be someone play at the funeral. People were getting married. Someone had to play at the wedding. There were concerts. The entertainment industry. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. Interesting that he's working with both. Leave that for another time. But he's, he's making things out of metal. Probably nice things and tools. Metallurgy. And then there's the sister of Tubal Cain who is Nama. Very unusual to mention a woman in a genealogy like this. I don't think it is a mistake that her name means gorgeous or delightful, or graceful. Probably not a stretch to say here we have the start of the fashion industry. What do we see here? A productive, thriving society. It is a society that develops because God protects it. It is a society, secondly, that develops apart from God's presence. Separated from fellowship with Him. Everything's working. Everyone's getting along. It's really functioning effectively. But it is a culture founded by a rebel against God who killed his righteous brother because he was righteous and who lives for the glory of his own name, naming the city after himself. And for this society, Lamech speaks in verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wise of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Dalich has called this a poem of titanic arrogance. And I think that's right on. 
it's obscure as to its meaning, but I think Lamech is saying that a young man hit him, a man in his youth, a man in his vigor, and, and Lamech is saying, and I took him out. I killed him. Following his father Cain, somebody has hurt my feelings, or maybe even his face, I don't know how hard he hit him or where, but he's going to take him out and kill him. Who is it that's avenging here in the context? God avenges Cain seven times if anyone kills Cain. Lamech is saying, I've been avenged 77 times. By whom? By me. I've taken care of my own business. He's not relying upon God's protection, God's timing. I don't need God in any of this. I'm certainly not going to wait on Him. If someone killed our father Cain, God would avenge them seven times. Somebody just offends me and I avenge myself 77 times. He speaks for the spirit of the age. I will get even. I will let people know who I am. And in pride, he speaks out of having killed this man as if he's done something noble. Now remember, movement one is Cain's worship. God rejects it because of his hard attitude, ultimately. Movement two is Cain's murder. God rebukes him in his sin and says, do not continue down this line. It will drag you down into more and more moral ruin. Turn from your sin. What does Cain do? Protect me, please, but stay out of my life. Now, Cain has formed a city. A whole society that works together against the purposes and the honor of God that takes care of its own business apart from the presence of God. And it thrives under God's common grace. In a sense here, God is going to respond again. He doesn't respond by talking to Cain. But here in the text, there's a sense in which God again responds. Verse 25, Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. In contrast to Enoch. So Abel is replaced. The hope of a deliverer continues from 3.15. Cain as the head of an ungodly society has crushed the lineage of hope that a Messiah would be born through Eve. But Seth replaces Abel and restores Eve's trust in God's promise. Seth becomes then a line of people in opposition to Cain's city. But rather than build a city for the glory of Seth's name, rather than name a city after her son, notice that she names him, finds her hope in him, And then the phrase is attached at the end of verse 26, at that time people began to call on the name of the Lord. What is the point of that? The people of Seth's line, I think is the point, begin to call on the name of the Lord in community together. It's not that no one had prayed before this time. That would be clearly wrong in what we've already seen. But they began to pray as a community together in public worship. A people who identified themselves as those who worship God on whose terms? On His terms. 
They're seeking the presence of God. Cain City, we don't need God. We're thriving just fine without Him. But here is a people that builds not a city, but goes to prayer and worship. Not that building a city is wrong. And of course, they do build cities in one sense of the term. But as the narrative plays out here, we have a city, a society, who does not call a city by their name, but rather calls in faith upon the Lord. Three movements. The spiral downward of Cain's life. From false religion to moral sin of a heightened nature to a whole society and city of worldliness in opposition against God. Out of that, we find defined here at the end another line that worships God on His terms. Now let's come back to our children. The village children making their way to the king's palace. One young boy, as as we looked at it, it seemed like they were all happy to have their own view and to accept one another's view about how to approach the king. But in fact, if we get a little closer to the group, there's one boy in there that kept saying, I'm right. You need to listen to what I'm saying. I know how the king wants to be approached. I don't care what you think, and I don't care what you think, though I respect what you're saying. I don't care what you guys think. You don't know what you're talking about. The king has a certain way that you have to approach him. And I know what it is, and you all need to listen to me. The children got so sick of this kid that they began to beat him. He was bloodied and hurt, and yet continued to insist that he knew the answer. You just don't respect us. It's not fair for you coming up with your own plan in your own way and not accepting our approach. Listen to how I'm going to approach the king. My way's better than your way. And the children fought the whole way there. But they came over the crest of a hill and there before them was this magnificent palace. They had never been very far from the village. As they saw this palace, their hearts grew cold. There was a pit in their stomach. They knew they were in way over their heads. And they knew intuitively they had no idea how to approach the king at his palace. But the little boy that they'd been beating on and misusing with great courage walked right up to the gates. And he turned and he motioned for them to follow. They could see his bruised face and his lip had been cracked and blood had been flowing down there and now dried. He looked horrible. But yet, to his peers, he's beckoning, saying, come, follow me. I know how to get in. I know what the king demands. I know the approach. In fear, they shuffle forward and he says, there's something I didn't tell you. I'm the king's son. And I'll get you in. That son begins to be introduced to us here in verses 25 and 26. It is through Seth, from Seth through Abraham, from Abraham through King David to the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1 and the Lord Jesus Christ. God is working a way 
for His Son to point the way into His kingdom. To create the ultimate and final approach. This Son does not only get a bloodied face, this Son will die and pay the penalty of sin. So that God is just in penalizing sin exactly as it ought to be punished. But this Son dies not for His own sin. The Lord Jesus Christ comes and dies for our sin. My iniquity was put on Him. My sins, every one, like ripping out of a piece of notebook and putting on each piece of paper every sin that I have committed has been nailed to His cross. This Son dies for sin. It's not simply religious effort that is going to get me into the King's presence, but it is the punishment of my sin completely paid for. This Christ has done. How do we know that He's any different than any other religious leader? How do we know that this is the way to God? Because this one did not only teach, this one died for you. And this one not only died, this one died and said, after three days I will rise again. We need no other evidence than that He was God's messenger to bridge the way between sinners and God. This is the Son who will take us in. I may speak to some here today, you are really working fairly hard to be a good religious person and to impress God with who you are. As you compare with others, you're a pretty good person. You may be coming to this church week in and week out, but you're really seeking God on your own terms. You're going to put pieces together from various religions or from even within the Christian faith. You're really going about it to do things your way as if God is somehow going to accept you because of what you've done. What is true for you and what is true of all of us is that we evidence our alienation from God in the way that we live and do not seek Him as our highest joy, ultimate good. But we adopt idols. We want people out of our way. We want to deal with things our own way. And we are, thirdly, very comfortable in this world that has no time for God. That's going to do things our own way. You may come and in some sense you are here today right in the position where Cain is. Your own self-centered worship. Your own self-centered way of living. And very comfortable in a world that does not honor Christ for who He is. I would say to you, Today is a day of salvation. Trust in the Son who will take you into the Father's presence. Because He alone, Christ alone, is the one who has made the way in. He has made the access to the Father possible. Don't come to the gates, so to speak, with your own plan, your own approach, and covered in the mire of your own sin. Come to the gates with the Son and say of the Son, Jesus Christ, I go in because of Him.
That's where my trust and my confidence is at. It's in Jesus Christ crucified and risen. I go in because of Him. That, in God's opinion, is the way. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we have no right indeed to criticize the opinions of others because our opinions are superior. But if it's true that You have expressed Your opinion in the person and work of Jesus Christ, then we bow before You in homage, in honor. And we rejoice in the reality, Father, that for those who so come to terms with sin, the result is not depression and discouragement and a sour life. The result is joy and gladness and thanksgiving. What a joy it is for us to leave at the gates our burden of sin to be washed clean by the work of Christ and to enter into Your presence forgiven, reconciled, at peace with You, our Maker and our Savior. There is anyone among us today that is separated from that gift that wants to go in to Your presence in their own strength. I pray, God, that You would make it clear how foolish that is and what You have laid out in Your Word as the way. May we cross the bridge, Jesus Christ, into Your presence, trusting fully and wholeheartedly upon the work that He has done. For those of us who know You, thank You for joy. Thank You for the confidence that Your love will never be taken from us. That You will sustain us through all eternity as the blood of Christ pleads for us and as our sin has been washed away. In this we give thanks through Christ. Amen.